going to be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verses 1 through 12. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you were in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance, for you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray that you would enable me to faithfully preach it and each one of us to faithfully receive it. We love you. We bless you. We continue to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you've already noticed that we're not preaching on the Gospel of Mark, and the reason for that is uh, partway through this week, the session thought that it would be good for me uh, to end our sequestering uh, with a little instruction on what we have learned from the past weeks and how we can continue to uh, grow even more going forward. Now, it's no secret that there have been all kinds of differing views on uh, sequestration on the perspectives of COVID-9, how serious the, the virus was. And some people are troubled by those kinds of differences. Those don't trouble the elders um, at all. Uh, actually, differences of viewpoint can be awesome times for growth. Even genuine conflict can be a great opportunities to grow in God's grace. And if we are too conflict averse, we can lose those opportunities. And I think for the most part, our congregation has done a fabulous job compared to some other congregations that we've done a great job in handling <clears throat> stressful times. And so this sermon in part will appreciate what we have done well, but we elders have recognized that even we as elders have not handled things completely perfectly. Hindsight's always better than foresight, isn't it? And uh, I've had confessions of my own sins and errors, and I do distinguish between error you know, of judgment and sins, but both are things that we ought to confess and admit to. And um, uh, we elders are quite uh, open to um, 
uh, embracing and uh, owning up to our errors. In fact, you know, Gary and I, uh, we've done a lot of prayer. Uh, every time there was a potential conflict even, Gary and I immediately went to prayer. So you're going to notice in your bulletin outlines, each of these points is labeled as a prayer. And I, I hope as we go through these principles today, it will be a blessing to all of you. Now let me start by reading a comment from a conflict management book that implies that lack of disagreement and even lack of conflict may not be a good sign. It could possibly, at least sometimes, be a bad sign. The author said, the comment that frightens me most as a consultant on conflict and cooperation is the declaration, I've been at this church for more than 20 years and we never have conflict. It frightens me because my experience tells me that either this congregation has not done anything for 20 years or it has failed to admit those instances where conflict has in fact existed. Another author said, conflict occurs most often in congregations in which there is a deep commitment to the church. The more deeply ingrained is the sense of ownership about what is happening, the more possible the conflict. Apathy is a sure guarantee of conflict-free setting. Persons who do not care about their faith are unlikely to exhibit enough energy to act upon it. Corpses do not fight. And I was especially humored by that last phrase, that corpses uh, do not fight. And you know that our church has been philosophically committed over the years to people being Bereans. You have the right to disagree until you can see things uh, in the Scripture. Now, that author was not saying that you should want conflict. That would be a bad sign. And he is not saying that you are God's special gift to induce conflict wherever you can. <laughs> that would not be a good sign either. But he's just saying that apathy is not a good alternative. Listen to one more comment from the leader of a, a very healthy, growing church. He said, we have dynamic people, dynamic ministries and programs which produce their share of conflict. We use the conflict to move each of us toward growth and the congregation toward even greater service. Uh, some of you have had conflict within your families because you've been cooped up together more than you ever have before, and it's given you opportunities to work through things that might not otherwise have happened. So even being cooped up has been a blessing. Others have felt frustrated that there even was a sequestration, and we can appreciate that and respect that. And the purpose of that, you can relax on that point. The purpose of this sermon is to have you evaluate how you have handled differences of opinion and conflict. And if we can learn from the past weeks of conflict, of differences, of stresses, disappointments, even from our sins, and I believe these past weeks will uh, be used to hugely grow, to hugely glorify the Lord. Paul had his share of conflict during his years of service, and I want to look at his seasoned instructions for how we can deal with differences that arise, whether they're serious or minor, whether they involve sin or not sin. Uh, I'm only going to deal with seven of those principles, and I've turned each one into a prayer that I've made for myself. First prayer that I've made is, Lord, would you show me if I have done anything wrong, or even if I'm right, if I have needlessly contributed to this stress? This is a prayer that can help bring humility in the midst of disagreements. It's basically asking God, Lord, Okay, I know, I think I know that I am right, but 
am I handling this with the right attitudes, with the right tactics? Is there anything that I need to, to change on? At least twice in the past several weeks, I have had to uh, repent because I have responded to an individual out of pride. And I immediately recognized that, and even while we were talking, uh, confessed that to them. So we're talking about all of us growing in this together. I think any time that there are stresses, there are great opportunities uh, for growth. Or you might be 100% right, just like everybody thinks they're 100% right, right? You might think you're 100% right, but you might have had wrong attitudes. Or you might be 90% right, but you're unwilling to confess that 10% because somebody will take advantage of that and think you're all wrong on this. We just need to turn it into a prayer to the Lord and say, I don't care, Lord, how other people view me. I want to be right before you. And it does not make you a rollover or a doormat. In fact, I think it makes you a much better warrior. This has to do with making sure that the Holy Spirit is delighted, not just with the goals. Okay, we're all concerned about goals but also with the methods and the attitudes as well. Paul starts off this chapter by saying, therefore, having these promises, beloved, and I want you to notice he includes himself in this us, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So Paul's starting off his discussion by saying, why don't we spend some time praying that the Lord would help us to understand if there's anything that we need to change in our own thinking. It's a wonderful way to start. And this has actually settled a lot of disputes I had with my dad growing up. Uh, I would say a majority of disputes, because my dad always did this. Uh, there'd be a dispute, and he would say, okay, we can't get together on this. Why don't we just pray to the Lord? I remember one time thinking, this is no fair, <laughs> because I knew as soon as I started praying to the Lord on this, it would adjust my attitude, and uh, I would see where I was wrong. The second principle is to be committed to openness and to call for openness. Uh, I love that Whitney's scripture into prayer, and that's what I've been doing. I've turned it into a prayer for myself. Lord, help me to be open and transparent and to encourage others to be open and transparent. Now, this is a very difficult pray, prayer to pray because pride gets in the way. Uh, we don't want to be bullied or taken advantage of, right? Well, let's look at examples of both sides of this prayer. Verse 2 says, open your hearts to us. He felt like people were closing off their hearts to him, and he was trying to get communication open again. Okay, and I really appreciate the fact that brothers have come to Gary and uh, me to express their frustrations or their disagreements with some of the things that we have, do have been doing. That is exactly implementing this principle. That's a wonderful thing to, to happen. We would much rather people be open. It doesn't mean we'll necessarily come to agreement at that point. Maybe later we will. But it shows an openness of relationship. So again, kudos to you. I appreciate the openness with which uh, many of you have discussed these things. It shows love for one another, a commitment to one another. You see, the first temptation when we have strong disagreements with each other is to avoid each other, to have barriers go up between us, to only talk with those who agree with us, and that can then cycle into habits of complaining, gossiping, backbiting, etc. And so Paul's second principle is very simple and logical. If there's a problem, let's talk about it. 
Makes sense, right? Let's talk about it. Talk to the person who has the problem and see if you can sort it out. And by the way, some of the problems may simply not be solvable. You know, that's not the end of the world if you've tried and you've tried and it's not solvable. You can see several examples in Scripture where both sides of a debate had actually legitimate biblical points, but for some reason they were not able to get past each other. If I have time, I might even bring up an example in the Gospel of Mark uh, next um, next week, uh, Lord willing, we'll see. But in some churches, this is actually frowned upon because disagreement is feared, especially if you voice your disagreement, and conformity is valued. We're, we're the opposite. We want people to be Bereans and to be able to discuss things. You know those circles of belief? Um, that booklet, I think, helps to navigate this. Now let's dig into this principle a little bit deeper because in this book of 2 Corinthians, we can see that the hurts went both ways. We'll be seeing in a moment that Paul had brought pain into their lives. Now, he was using the truth to do it, but it automatically brought some barriers up with other people. But I want to first of all look at how Paul handled their wrongful hurts toward him. And I think we can learn from this. Paul had been hurt by this congregation over and over again. In chapter 10, he quotes the congregation as saying about him, his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. Wow, that is pretty bold. I would say it's sinfully bold, and it was definitely hurtful uh, to Paul. In chapter 11, he was called inferior. He was not paid a salary, even though he deserved a salary, and he said he deserved a salary. In the same chapter, they claimed falsely that he did not love them. And then the false apostles had convinced the people to start calling Paul a fool. Um, if you read through the book, you can see that Paul had been badly hurt to the core of his being. Concerning this conflict, Paul said in verse 5, outside were conflicts, inside were fears. And the most natural thing for Paul to do would just be write them off, have nothing more to do with them. You know, okay, if you don't like what I have to say, I'm going to resign from the committee. <laughs> You've heard people do that. And Paul, no, that's not the right attitude. So rather than pushing such people off, Paul wanted to maintain open lines of communication. In the previous chapter, this is chapter 6, verse 11, Paul said, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. We're not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. This is the hardest step to take in managing conflict, getting people who have cut themselves off from each other to be vulnerable once again, husbands with wives, members with members, yes, sometimes officers with a member. And we're not talking just about being civil with each other. It's easy to still be alienated and be civil and smile and uh, be polite. But we're talking about, with genuine reconciliation, having an openness, a heart that is open. Now, notice I didn't say you have to agree. You could be open with each other and not be in agreement and not even having to discuss past pains. There is unlikely to be 100% agreement between any two thinking individuals on the earth. Disagreement is just part of our uh, fallible, finite state. Uh, but openness, that is achievable by God's grace. And I will admit that having an open, vulnerable heart is a very hard thing to do. So what does it mean to have an open heart? It involves at least four things that are not in your notes. First of all, involves acceptance of the person. Now, this doesn't mean necessarily that you accept their viewpoint, 
but you accept their person. Second, deeper communication with the person. And deeper communication doesn't mean that you are going to constantly bring up the disagreement that it originally alienated you. Okay, that's not deeper communication, constantly harping on that thing until they finally give in and they submit. That's harassment. That's not open communication, or at least it's nagging. Deeper communication recognizes, hey, we can have differences. That's okay, but we're still committed to having open communication on all of the issues of life and not just have surface communication. That's tough. Third, it involves displayed love for that person. Just think of the languages of love and see if you have withdrawn any of those languages of love to whoever it is that is alienated from. It's a sign you still have a closed heart. So the languages of love really do need to be present. So accept the person, deeper communication with the person, displaying love, those are all the languages of love, and then fourth, a willingness to allow that person to disagree with us without feeling insulted or uh, betrayed. Acceptance does not mean that you have to agree. You can accept the person, be committed to him without believing that he is right on the issue that you are discussing. It's a sign of maturity when you're able to graciously handle those kinds of disagreements. Now, why are people reluctant to do this? to have open hearts. Why had the Corinthians closed off their affections toward Paul? The reason is that the moment you open your heart to somebody, you become vulnerable and you can get hurt all over again, right? Uh, You can avoid hurts by not getting married. Uh, You can avoid hurts by not having friends, going off and being a hermit. Actually, that's not entirely true because you could be a hermit and keep getting hurt over and over again by reminding yourself and stewing over the pastors, right? But the point is, the best things in life require that you take a risk of getting hurt from time to time. The truth hurt when Paul preached it, and these people didn't like it. And I think our church has been successful. Honestly, I think our church, when I've compared various churches out there, our church has been very successful in having these kinds of deep relationships. It's one of the things that's made this sequestration so, so painful, because you guys do love one another. You love uh, getting together. And um, it's one of the things, uh, in hindsight, that I wish we had done differently. Um, But someone recently convinced me of that. But anyway, hindsight's usually better than foresight. Anyway, the various passages on openness in this book shows me that it's not enough for you to be right on whatever issue it is. Hear me on this. It's not enough to be right. Okay, Paul was right, but because he knew that the truth hurts and tends to make people clam up and to shut their hearts up, he pursued them with love. He didn't just hit them with the truth. He pursued them with love. He did what he could to develop open relationships, and that should be the goal when resolving church conflicts. Not winning the argument, but bringing the people to the place where, you know, we could be open with each other, and just recognize we probably won't uh, always agree. Now, here's how I've turned verse 2 into a prayer. Lord, cleanse me from the fear of man and from false humility if my criticism is correct. Sometimes people are way too quick to back down or to apologize because they're fearful of offending the other person. In fact, uh, you may have been fearful of expressing your disagreements with the session uh, for this uh, very reason. But if you believe you are right in your disagreement with us or with anybody else, you need to feel free to say that, that you believe that. 
Uh, we would much rather there be open communication than stuffing of emotions. Actually, I think Gary and I would agree, almost everybody in the congregation is that way. There might be a few that could stand to get a little bit more humility in admitting that once in a blue moon Tuesday, you might be wrong. But uh, I think most of you are pretty open on these things. But I'm giving instruction. I think these past weeks have, have uh, been times as you've come and wanted help. How do we deal with some of these conflicts? Great learning opportunities. And so what I'm trying to do is get everybody on board with these things so that we can move forward and grow together. But we want to avoid a false humility that makes us too quick to apologize even where we're right. And where do I get that from the text? Take a look at the second sentence at verse 2. Paul says, we have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have defrauded no one. Was he being arrogant? No, this is an inspired statement, so it's true. And he's telling the truth, he's saying, look, and he does admit that he had uh, erred uh, later. He says, I did have regret, now I don't have regret, but... Yeah, maybe I shouldn't have had regret before. So he has had some things that he's open, he confesses. But on this particular point, he says, no, we've really not wronged anyone. Uh, Now, you might initially think that you are 100% right, and then later come to realize, huh, I guess it isn't 100% that I was right on that. That's been occasion uh, true of me as well. So there needs to be a balance between the humility of self-examination and avoiding false humility. Now, he admits later that he brought them pain. There was no question about that. But he wants them to realize, look, in this case, it was not because of any wrong in me. I was simply trying to lovingly bring the truth into your life. Now, this gets to the flip side of verse 1. Verse 1, to avoid Phariseeism, we've already seen that we must be open and honest about our own sinfulness. But the opposite extreme must be avoided too. We ought not to solve conflict by admitting fault when we're not at fault, or at least when we're not convinced yet that we're at fault. We might end up being there, right? But it would be a form of lying. If we're not convinced that we're at fault and we apologize, it's a form of lying. Uh, Those of you who have read Peacemaker know I'm getting some of my uh, stuff from here, but uh, they quoted G.K. Chesterton writing about a man who, quote, was so anxious to forgive that he denied the need of forgiveness. Understand what I'm saying or what he's saying there? When people sinned against him, he would downplay the seriousness of what they had done because he didn't want them to feel bad. He didn't want to ruffle feathers. That's a false humility. Unfortunately, this is the only way some people know how to resolve a fight. It's by admitting that they were partly to blame, even if they were not at all to blame. That does not solve the issues. In fact, it reinforces the sin and rebellion and pride of the other person. I've known people you could not drag with a mule to confess their own sin unless the other person also owned up to some wrong. And then they would brush it off, say, well, yeah, we're all sinners. We all make mistakes. But they felt like, okay, once they've admitted, I can admit to it too. So if you're one of those people who is so proud that you will not humble yourself unless you can also throw a stone, you really do need to repent of that. Such attitudes make genuine conflict resolution impossible. On the other hand, if you're always making peace by admitting blame when there really is no fault on your part, you are an enabler, an enabler of the other person's prideful ways. So as we walk through these, you can see how on earth do we keep all of these principles? 
I mean, we're going to be violating these from time to time in the future. It takes God's grace. We constantly need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, <laughs> I blew it again just this last minute. Help me to implement this. The more we practice these principles, the either easier we'll get. So maybe you're married. You know, divorce is not an option. And so the only way you can keep peace is by okay, I was wrong, and you take the blame, even though you're not wrong. That's what we're talking about. That is a false humility. A fourth principle that is absolutely critical is the need to always communicate a positive attitude. And I've broken that prayer down into four parts. Proverbs says that a harsh answer stirs up strife. So let's assume you're 100% right in your issue, but you come at it with a harsh attitude, he says, it's not going to help. It's actually going to harm. It's going to stir up conflict, make things worse. So again, being right in a conflict does not guarantee that you have God's blessing or that what you are doing will benefit the other person. So we're going through four ways in which Paul showed a positive attitude. First of all, he says in verse 3, I do not say this to condemn. So turning that into a prayer, I have prayed, Lord, I don't want to condemn anyone. Paul's goal was not to hurt, to get even, to mash them into the ground with the truth. And people say, hey, I, I have to share the truth. Well, okay, that's true, but let's examine how. In chapter 3, Paul contrasted a ministry of condemnation with a ministry of life. And here is the interesting thing about those two ministries. They both were on the right side of the question. Okay, they both were implementing God's law and the truth. So that, that's very, very interesting. But the ministry of condemnation was only concerned about the integrity of the law and the truth, did not care about the person adequately. In contrast, the ministry of the Spirit is concerned about the whole person. Spirit gave the law, so it's not like he's against the law. He gave the law, but he gave it out of a desire to give life through grace. And so Paul says, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So Paul didn't use uh, the law to bring conviction and uh, just to prove that he was right. I mean, we can use uh, the, the, the truth as a club, right? Paul was interested more than winning an argument. Paul wanted to win the person. So let's just use a metaphor. We've got a, a wound on the arm that's festering and infected. Paul opened up the wound, that hurts, in order to pour in the medicine. The ministry of condemnation only opens up the wound and keeps opening up the wound. And it never pours in the medicine. The ministry of the Spirit opens the wound, it still brings conviction, and yet it's conviction so that there can be healing. So he, he reassures this, look, I'm not writing this because I'm against you. I'm here because I'm on your side. So that was the first uh, principle. Don't have a ministry of condemnation. Another way to be positive, uh, the next phrase uh, continues uh, saying, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. Now here's how the NIV renders verse 4. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. It's basically letting people know you believe in them. Okay? The way I've turned this into a prayer is to say, Lord, enable me to demonstrate my words and my actions, uh, by my words and my actions, that I am for them. Now, 
this is especially important when people are close. It's a husband and wife who are disagreeing. It's uh, maybe close members, maybe an officer and uh, a member. Paul would not give up on the Corinthians. Why? Well, he gives in this chapter several reasons. He says because God loves them. He has saved them. He says that we're indwelt by the Spirit. We are being made to be conformed to the image of Christ. He is promised, having begun a good work, he's not going to um, stop until he has finished it. So if God is for them to that degree, who are we to be against them? That's basically the point. You can be for a person and still disagree, but sadly, disagreements often lead us to diminish our desire to be for them. That's where sin creeps in, even when we're right on the issue. Now, when you're armed with the confidence of what God's grace can achieve, those several points that I just went over, then it lets you be relieved it's not up to me to change that person's heart. I think most of us, at some point in our lives, have tried to change people's hearts, and we try and try, and it just leads to frustration, especially if the other person's a rockhead, right? It's going to get anger. It's just, it doesn't go anywhere. But when we realize we're just stewards of the Word of God, like uh, Gary preached on last week, we can trust God for His timing. We can trust God and His sovereignty on how and when He will change them. And so we need to have confidence as an expression of our faith in God. Lord, I'm not the person who is their Savior. You are. I'm just sharing the truth with them. Help me not to get frustrated. And then secondly, it helps the other person to not be frustrated when they can see they are totally secure in the relationship wherever this goes. Hopefully that makes sense. Now, this is a hard one, but we need to project that confidence that the other person is secure in our relationship of love, even if we know that we are, at least we think that we are, uh, in the right and they're in the wrong. One man who's involved in the concilia Christian Conciliation Service of Los Angeles said, we must have irrational confidence. Now, even though I don't like his use of irrational, because there is absolutely nothing irrational about the Bible, it might seem irrational, because it's not based on things down here below. It's based on the Word of God. And so unbelievers can look on and say, why are you guys still hanging out together and loving on each other? If I were in your shoes, I would have written that person off long ago. And your response can be, hey, if Christ loves them the same way he loves me, who am I to stop loving? God has commanded us to be knit together in this way. So express confidence in the relationship. The third way we can show a positive attitude is to express faith in the biblical process. And I turn verse 4 into this prayer. Lord, help me to have joy and confidence that your way does work. Paul said in verse 4, I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. Now, the mention of comfort admits that there is pain, right? But because he has turned this pain and this conflict Godwards, it enables him to be positive. I am filled with comfort. I'm exceedingly joyful. In other words, I'm not undone, you know. I'm not, I'm not, uh, uh, I've not been killed by this conflict. I'm confident that God's working in me. He's working in you. It was not the situation that gave him that joy. It was the process by which God is conforming all of us into the image of his son, and none of us has arrived. God said that his way of doing things is capable of tearing down strongholds, tearing, taking every thought captive. So if we engage in conciliation, but in the back of our minds we think it's not going to work, that does not show confidence. We need to approach it with faith 
that doing things God's way always works in God's plan. So, so those are some of the different ways that, um, that he did. A fourth way that Paul maintained a positive attitude can be seen in verses 5 through 16, where he acknowledges the pain of the past in verse 5, but he's not bound by the past, not harping on the past, not chained to the past, and isn't constantly projecting pain from the past. I've turned that into a prayer. Lord, help me not to be so wrapped up in the pain of the past, verse 5, that I'm blind to the beautiful things you are doing in the present and the future. Many times, there is nothing that can be done about the past, and it's not going to help the conflict at all to harp upon it. Harping on the past, bringing it up, constantly being resentful, many times spoils attempts at bringing reconciliation. So do like Paul. Say, if it's not possible, we forget about the past, and we work on the present and have hope for the future. So those are some of the ways that Paul maintained a positive attitude. Point five highlights the fact that it takes effort to promote this kind of unity. And Paul was so committed to unity that he was willing to live or die for the Corinthians. That shows sacrifice. Be committed to radical unity and appeal to others for the same radical unity. When you see unity starting to break apart, address it. Put out the fires. Be the peacemaker. Don't leave that up to the elders and the deacons. Look at verse 3. Paul says, you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Now, if you had that kind of a commitment, it would help you to press through whatever issues are out there. In fact, in our membership covenant, it commits us to exactly that. I'm only going to read just a small handful of the things every one of us has committed in the one anothering passages. Be at peace with one another. Love one another. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Be willing to associate with one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Building up one another. Accept one another. Admonish one another. Okay, those are some balancing uh, things too there, aren't there? Uh, serve one another. Show forbearance to one another. Speak truth as members of one another. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. Be subject to one another. Do not lie to one another. Bear with one another. Spur one another on to love and good deeds. Do not complain against one another. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Fervently love one another. Offer hospitality to one another, serving one another, humility toward one another. Now, if you've recognized any possible sins in your life, I would really encourage you before you come to the Lord's table that you get those right with the Lord and even get them right with each other. If you've had sins against each other in the congregation, you want to eat unto blessing, not unto judgment. This is an incredible meal that we love coming to, but we ought to fear coming to it if we have broken relationships. You could do, so, you could do that even during the singing of the hymn of response. Paul said, you are in our hearts to die together and to live together, and that's the, exactly the attitude commanded of every one of us in 1 John 3:16, which says, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for uh, the brethren. I'll just use an illustration. You know, a husband and a wife can get frustrated and want to just leave, but they know, I can't do that. I'm stuck. I'm committed. Well, this verse is saying we've got to take the attitude that we're committed. 
We're not going to break the relationship. We're committed. Even if it's painful, we're committed. Principle six is that we shouldn't forget that there are several options for conflict resolution between believers. And you can pray that God would give you wisdom on which option to follow. The slippery slope uh, chart that I took from Peacemakers is on the bottom of your page and gives some options I haven't listed. Um, We shouldn't assume that discipline is the first thing. Somebody's offended me, I'm going to take you to church court. That's what happens in some churches. They're way too litigious. That's just not right. I've picked out some sample options, and the first one is to simply give in. And some people might think, no way. If I'm right, I'm denying the truth if I give in. Uh, Not necessarily. Not necessarily. uh, It's not a violation of the truth. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7 is an example of giving in even though you are right. Okay? Uh, Paul made it clear that giving in is always better, and he gives one example, than taking a pagan uh, to, to a pagan, uh, taking a brother to a pagan court. He made clear that both parties have lost when they go to court. There's emotional loss, economic loss, loss of reputation, loss of ministry, loss of friendship. So he says, when you take a brother to court, quote, it is already an utter failure for you. That's pretty strong words. It's an utter failure. Praise God, nobody here is tempted to take somebody to court. But I'm just using it as an illustration of how we handle these principles. And so after saying that, that's not, he says, what are the options that are legitimate, that are not another failure? He says, one of them is giving in. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be defrauded? Now that's astounding. Our warrior-type personalities, and especially for us men, we tend to want to immediately go into action. Giving in, that just seems weird. You know, it seems like a compromise. But what Paul is saying is you got to evaluate the alternatives. Given the alternatives that are out there, it's just better to lose your money, move on, and continue to have fellowship with this person. Uh, some people have a hard time doing that. They get bitter, and so they do need to go on to the next step. But I'm not saying you have to give in. I'm just saying realize this is one of the options that is out there. If you're never willing to give in, it's not a good sign. Uh, so it's one of the many, many, uh, there are many examples that you can find in peacemakers of this. Um, Uh, One of them would be Abraham. Remember, he dug these wells, and there was conflict over them, and he said, it's just not worth the fight. He walked away. He gave in. Did he have to? No, but he considered it not worth it, given the the, the circumstances. Husbands and wives sometimes do this for each other. It's not an unbiblical option, so long as we're not violating one of the earlier principles, such as being an enabler. You do not want to be an enabler of sin, giving in on sin. No, no, not at all. But some people will buck this and they say, unless I agree, I cannot submit. But as any wife knows, true submission actually is tested by whether we will submit when we disagree. There are many wives who disagree with their husbands, but they sweetly submit because it doesn't involve them in sin. Okay, that's an okay thing. Disagreement can be a true test of submission. Actually, it can be a true test of a lot of things, but it's definitely a true test of submission. Husbands will sometimes give in on policy because of love, not submission, but because of love. Are they compromising on this? Well, yeah, there's a sense in which they are, but it's not a sinful compromise. They are saying, look, it's not my preference, but because I love my wife and I know this bothers my wife, I'm just going to give in on this thing. 
A lot of people don't understand that these are legitimate biblical options. Uh, we recognize some of you guys have done that with the health protocols, and we respect that. Uh, you don't have to agree with us uh, to uh, be able to you know, go along with things like that. So enough on that, but I think our congregation, for the most part, understands these principles, but it's, it's good to review them. Another method that Paul allowed was negotiation. This is the first step of Matthew 18, where you go and you reason with the person yourself. Third process allowed by the Bible is mediation. It's actually the second step uh, of, of Matthew 18, where outsiders are brought in. They can be brought in for witnesses, but they can be brought in for mediation, trying to restore the person. Sometimes that doesn't work, and you just drop it. A lot of people don't realize that's an option. You can just, okay, we've not been able to mediate. Never mind, I'm just going to drop it. Sometimes you go to the next step. Fourth option is arbitration. The difference between mediation and arbitration is that mediation is a third uh, party who's facilitating a, re a resolution, whereas in arbitration, a third party is given the right to make the decision, okay? We call it binding arbitration because both of the people who are in the conflict have said, we can't settle this, and we know it's hopeless for us to settle this. You're a wise person, even if I think that you made the wrong decision, I'm gonna to submit to it. We gotta get past this. And so they allow them to evaluate all the issues. By the way, um, it's not just, that's not the only way to implement this principle. Proverbs 18 verse 18 says, you can allow a lot to be the binding arbitration. You can say, we can't get past this. In Proverbs 18, I, don't, I can't quote it exactly, but it, it talks about the lot settling disputes. So you can, uh, in modern parlance, say, you know, we've tried to get past this, we can't. Let's just flip a coin, whichever way it settles uh, is gonna settle that. We're just gonna let God's providence. And, and that doesn't mean that God has said, you're right and I'm wrong, or I'm right and you're wrong. It's just saying, we're going to walk past this, okay, and, and this is the way to do it. It's a legitimate biblical option. Taking it to church courts is a form of arbitration, but it really is distinct because frequently one of the parties is hostile, will not submit to the court, and ends up uh, being excommunicated. That's not always the case. Some people are willing to allow the church court to judge and settle it, and they've just promised, even if we don't think it's right, we'll abide by the result. That's a very godly way. So there are various choices that Paul gives for facing conflicts, and we need to make sure we understand that we are not boxed into a confrontational method. Scripture does give leeway. The last principle I want to address is that Paul sought to win people, not arguments, and I've turned it into the prayer. Lord, help me to win this person, not just win the argument. Now, this is actually implied all the way through the sermon, so maybe I didn't need a seventh point. Uh, it's kind of woven throughout the sermon, but I do want to highlight the ways that Paul won people. First, he always communicated affection and caring for those that he differed with. He starts this chapter by calling them beloved. Just another way of saying, hey guys, I love you. I love you. He said that his heart was wide open for them. He told them that he was united to them in life and death. In verse 12, he says that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Over and over, Paul affirmed his love, his care for them, and I think we would do well to do the same. During times of conflict, people might think mistakenly think we don't care about them when we really do, we're just disagreeing. And so it's still important to communicate, over-communicate that that is the case. And I think some of you have been masters at this, absolutely fantastic at this positive display. A second way 
he sought to win people rather than arguments was he didn't take sides with people. He took sides on issues. There's a huge difference between those two. Paul wanted the best for all parties. For example, in verse 12 he says, Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. He says, I didn't get involved because I liked this person, didn't like the other person. I'm not taking sides. I'm taking sides on the issue. So he genuinely showed concern and caring for those on all sides of the issue. He was fair to both sides. When you have this kind of attitude, you can work out biblical compromises many times. When I use the word compromise, I don't mean compromising any biblical principle. I'm talking about compromising our desires, compromising our preferences, okay? Now, the last sub-point was that Paul ended up closer to the Corinthians as a result of the conflict, and this is what we should all desire. The conflicts that have happened over the past weeks, I think, have done the exact opposite of what Satan desired, because we have pursued you, you've pursued us, you've pursued each other. That's the way it should be, and I think these past weeks have been fantastic practice ground for potentially much more serious persecution and issues that might come in the future. I think we've all grown through this. It's been great. Verse 7 says, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. They all grew through this time of uh, conflict. Verse 15 says of Titus, his affections are greater for you. Titus actually cared for them more afterwards than he did before. His affections are greater for you. One of the ways that you can tell if you have handled conflict in a biblical way or not is the long-term results. Are you closer to the people? Or is there a lingering distance and alienation? Like the prodigal son, is that person made to feel fully welcomed back or is he in the doghouse? You know, some people make you feel in the doghouse on a conflict, whether you're right or wrong. doesn't matter. Just the fact that there was a conflict, there's alienation for a period of time. Uh, Christians should not do that. We are called by God to win people, not simply win conflicts. Now, you can see we have covered an enormous amount of <laughs> territory. There's a lot more that's in there. If you want to read more on this, read Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker. It is a fabulous book. When conflicts come into your family, pray. I think I've hopefully shown you, we're going to blow it from time to time on these issues which should drive us back to God. Say, oh, I need grace, Lord, forgiveness. I haven't quite handled this the right way. And then you move forward. You don't live in regrets. Uh, But the more we practice these principles, I would encourage you to keep hold of those principles or at least buy the book by Ken Sandy. But uh, the more we practice these, the better off we will be. We elders want to own our mistakes and our sins. And we want to be closer to you as a result of our experiences. It's my prayer that our church would become more and more consistent with God's word in this area of study. And again, I thank you for your patience with the elders. Uh, We can honestly say we do have a deep, deep love for each one of you. Pray for you regularly. Um, We hurt for you, you know, during the time, the, the pains that you've been going through. But hopefully... Uh, We have all learned, and uh, if there are future things that come up, uh, all of us, I think, will handle them even better. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. 
that it gives us concrete instruction for absolutely every issue that we walk through. We need your insight. We need a continuing um, illumination from your spirit uh, to navigate the paths ahead of us. And I pray this not just for our congregation, but uh, for the other congregations in the CPC. Uh, there is still disagreement among the elders in the CPC on how exactly to navigate these these things. And I just pray for the illumination of your Holy Spirit to increasingly enable us to apply your word in a faithful way. I thank you we can come to the Lord's table. And I pray, Father, that as we sing this next hymn, if there's anything that we need to confess to you, that we would just lay it at the feet of Jesus and uh, that we would receive your blessing in this sacrament. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.